Hey, welcome to Scratching the Surface. I'm Jared Fuller, and this is a podcast about finding your place in design. Today's episode is honestly one of my favorite conversations that I've had for the podcast. I am joined by the great architecture critic, educator, and writer, Reed Kroloff. Earlier this year, Reed was named the Dean of the Illinois Institute of Technology's College of Architecture. But before this, he was the director of the Cranbrook Academy of Art and the Dean of Tulane University's Architecture School and was the editor-in-chief of Architecture Magazine. He's also the principal of Jones Kroloff, a design consultancy that helps clients envision their projects and helps helps them select designers. So as you can imagine, we had a lot that we could talk about. This conversation begins with Reed in architecture school and feeling like he's not sure he's cut out to be an architect and how this feeling led to the multifaceted career that he's had that spans writing and criticism and teaching and administration. We also talk about how writing and teaching influence his own thinking, the evolution of design criticism, and how he's thinking about his new role as dean at IIT. This conversation could have easily gone on for another hour. I found it uh, completely inspiring and informative and just really admire the career that Reed's built over the last 30 years. For the month of December, Scratching the Service memberships are on sale for $40 if you use the coupon code STS2020. If you are a fan of the podcast, these memberships truly help keep the show going. It helps with costs and the ongoing production. And for just $40, you can help sustain the show for the next year. Monthly memberships are also uh, obviously available for $5 a month. And members get an exclusive monthly newsletter that collects news and writing about design and criticism and writing and expanded practices. We obviously couldn't do this show without these memberships, and I would love for you to join and love for you to help if you can. Again, to sustain the show for a year for only $40, you can use the coupon code STS2020. Thank you, as always, for listening, and enjoy this conversation with Reed Kroloff. You know, I actually want to start with something kind of related to what we were just talking about before we started recording and preparing for this and in kind of reading about you and your work. I stumbled upon a short article that was written by, I guess, one of your former teachers from grad school when you were studying architecture. And this, I think this was written shortly after you became the director at Cranbrook. And uh, what this professor said is that... Um, they were kind of just saying how successful you were and that it was they were liked watching your career blossom, but that when you were in grad school, you were this kind of smart, articulate person who was interested in architecture, but just hated the studio classes <laughs> and, and kind of felt like maybe you shouldn't be an architect and were kind of ready to give it up. And so I want to start there. And so the first question is, is that an accurate description of your experience in architecture school? And then two, if it is, what was it about architecture that you even decided to go back to school because you didn't originally study architecture? And then why was it once you got there, did it not feel right? Or or what was kind of not interesting to you about it? Well, uh, that is, it is definitely accurate. And, and I know who um, who was speaking there, um, uh, a man named uh, Lawrence Speck. Yep, yeah. yeah. The former, former dean of the University of Texas at Austin and now a principal in an architectural practice called Page. Um, and he's been a, a true mentor and, and, and good friend of mine 
since the day I got to school. And, and, mm. and Larry is, Larry is just the picture of what one hopes to find, uh, in an educator. Um, mm. something that someone who goes way beyond, um, way beyond their writ as an educator to, to being someone who helps you shape your own life. Um, Care, very carefully asking the right questions and, and pushing you here and there um, until you till you get on a path that, that makes sense for you and without ever shaping it for you, having a huge, uh, which one shouldn't do, um, right. having a huge impact on you nonetheless. And I truly owe my entire career um, mm-hmm. over and over again to Larry's guidance. So I'm, I'm glad you got to see that. Um, and the answer is yes. Uh, I was very frustrated after a year of architecture school because I don't think I knew what to expect. I got interested in architecture early as a child, and my my parents supported that fantasy. We lived in Phoenix. My mother was a real estate agent when I was young, and she used to take me to every open house and a lot of the things that were for sale. And I would do yeah. draw up floor plans of all the buildings that we had seen. There was also a half dozen Frank Lloyd Wright buildings in Phoenix and a number of other prominent architects. And she would take me to see all of those, my father as well. And so they encouraged it at that time. When I told, uh, then I went to college um, and in college, my parents suggested that I take a class from an art historian who they had heard of when they were students because Mm. he made a big splash um, early in his career, Vincent Scully. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) And okay. Had, oh, you should take this guy, the class from this guy, Scully. My dad said, yeah, he's either an art historian or a, a baseball announcer, but one of the two, uh, <laughs> neither one will hurt you. And, uh, <laughs> and so I went to take Vince's class and I dropped it because I thought after listening to him mm. talk about architecture, the way he talked about it, that he was either crazy or, <laughs> or someone should maybe not allow their kids to take classes from someone because <laughs> of the way he spoke about architecture and very, with great, great physicality, um, his descriptions. And, um, my parents made me go back and take it again. Uh, and I, did. Oh wow. Yeah. And I did. And I stayed for the second lecture and I fell in love with Vincent Scully, um, just mm-hmm. head over heels. I, I he, he just, everything about the man, um, was so extraordinary. His, 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 brilliance, his wit, uh, his ability to, to convey information that would be as dry and dusty as it could possibly be in another context and turn it into something living, pulsating, uh, just absolutely enveloping, uh, was nothing short of masterful. And, um, and the material itself then, it wasn't just the man, though it was a lot of the man. Um, and, uh, he appealed to the to the showman in me, the showman <laughs> and the yeah. frustrated actor. Um, but it was, it was much more the scholarship, the brilliance and, and the material itself. Architecture was, my eyes were opened in a way that one hears about, you know, when you, when people talk about themselves having that moment in school mm-hmm. um, and this was it. And um, I'm very fortunate. My parents are generous and remarkably supportive people. And um, they had a deal with their kids that if you did well in college, after college, you could uh, take six months off and they would support you in mm. some crazy adventure, whatever it was. Mm-hmm. 
Oh, that's that is nice. It was very nice. I, being the complete pinheaded nerd that I've always been, thought, "Oh, good, I can go back to school." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I enrolled in architecture school uh, at the University of Texas at Austin. Um, I was a state resident, so it meant it was very inexpensive to take this experiment. And I was just completely um, intoxicated with the subject. And unfortunately, school made me sober up and mm. realize that that this was actually a real profession. You had to work and there were certain, <laughs> um, certain conventions about what that meant that were that were difficult for me. I'm, I'm not artistic. Uh, mm. And uh, learning to draw um, was was painful at that stage. Um, and there were others who could do it with such facility and, and so quickly. And that was frustrating. And, um, the, the kind of romantic side of the profession uh, of the educational aspects of architecture were quickly overwhelmed for me by the practical. Right. And, and, uh, I found myself in deep distress at the end of the first year. And I went to see Larry and told him, I just thought I wasn't cut out for this. And, he said something that so completely encapsulates him, but also um, explains partly why I became an educator. I, I said, I, I said to him, I think I'm, I'm failing. Um, I'm failing all of you, my faculty. Mm. Mm. And he said, no, Reed, actually we're failing you. There should be a place in architecture for somebody like you, someone who really loves it and is energetic uh, and isn't without talent as a designer, just is struggling to, to get right. there. And um, we have to do better for you. And so please don't leave. Hmm. And so I stayed and, and he helped me uh, in terms of how I could do better in design and drawing. And it became easier for me as it does for everyone um, who stays with it. Um, mm -hmm. And then he did something wonderful, which was to put me on the staff of the new new publication that the school was starting called Center, which is a, a, um, a scholarly, um, a mostly scholarly um, academic review of various subjects in architecture. And that, that was one of those first, that was the second magic switch. So yeah. Vince was the first, Vince Scully was the first magic switch. Larry Speck and Center was the second magic switch. Um, and then the third magic switch is I became Larry's TA mm. and that enabled me to have my first experiences teaching. And that was it. The three switches had been thrown and three is a magic number. And, um, my career began to have a little bit of a shape. I knew at that moment that it was unlikely that I would be a traditional architect because these other things, teaching and writing were very important to me. It's a long answer for you. No, I I loved that, and I, I don't mean to to kind of like parallel this to my own <laughs> to my own story, but but I I see a lot of my own life in that also, and and I think uh, the 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 difference is you know when you talked about kind of going to to Austin and studying architecture and realizing the the. Um, uh, I forget the word that you used, but kind of like the um, the constraints of the profession. That was me as soon as I finished undergrad and I had my first job as a designer. I was like, oh, 
this is not what this was like <laughs> when I was in school. And not that it was hard or not that I didn't want to do it or that I didn't want to put in the work, but just, uh, oh, the, this kind of intellectual s- stimulation that I got from school is not the most important thing when I'm working. And and I, I, I think there's some similarity there. Can you talk more? I don't mean to make this whole conversation about you know, the kind of trajectory of your career. But I think it's interesting that while you're in school, you you find writing and you find teaching. And that kind of literally does set up what you've been doing since. When you were there, um, were teaching and writing, did that seem like a career? Or, you know, what were you kind of thinking was going to happen after? What did you want to do next? Were you kind of looking at for teaching jobs immediately? No, initially, I, I when I went to school, I did think I would be an architect in a mm. traditional way. Um, although there was a kind of prophetic moment that I should have paid more attention to at the time when I first got to Austin. Um, I responded to a call uh, at, for a movie casting, and mm. um, I went and read lines, and amazingly, they called me back. Um, <laughs> okay. And then they uh, had me read some more lines. And then they actually offered me a part in this movie that was going to get made um, mm. in West Texas. And um, I, I didn't know what to do. And I went to see the dean's office. And I said, look, I'd, I'd love to be able to go do this, but it takes 16 weeks. Can I start in January? And they said, no, you have to mm. start in, Janu- in, in September because studio sequences are sequential. The studios are sequential, sorry. And um, we just don't have a way of starting you in January. So you have to choose. You can come back next year if you'd like. Um, and so mm-hmm. I, I, uh, I check it out and went ahead and went to school. But <laughs> I, I should have recognized that there were, that was a piece of me that, right. that needed attention. Um, the teaching thing was sparked by Scully. Um, it, he was just such a, a master and such a showman. And mm-hmm. Such a scamp. I mean, he pulled every trick in the book um, to to try and sell the product, as it were. Um, yeah. Architecture. Uh, it was it was by turns fascinating, brilliant, humorous, painful, emotional. I mean, he was able to wring all of that out of a one hour talk, and I was so impressed with that that I really did immediately think, "Wow, what an amazing opportunity!" teaching offers you to be able to make a subject like that come alive. Um, yeah. Wouldn't that be fun? And then Larry was the exact opposite. He's just the most amiable, easygoing, not mm. showy. Um, although he had his tricks too, but um, not, not showy like, like Vince, it, uh, just a, a very folksy, a very folksy. That's I think the word I'd use approach mm-hmm. his ability to talk to people in, in regular day-to-day language, the language that right. they speak, was just marvelous. And again, though, it, the, the net result was the same. Hundreds and hundreds of people who changed their minds and decided to become designers or try to, or at least studied architecture right. and became sympathetic about right. it. So that was always in me a little bit. Um, yeah. And then, you know, the experience at school enabled me to, to have a little opportunity to that and, and to to confirm to me that um, it was an area of interest. And I started teaching immediately after graduating um, and didn't stop. 
um, and until I became editor of architecture. So, and, and so immediately after was that, did you go to Arizona state to teach immediately after that? No, there was, there were a couple of years, actually, I foolishly went into business with a partner, a friend, uh, okay. a woman who's, who had already had a practice, uh, in interiors and she and I opened an architectural practice, which oh, you're okay. not supposed to do, um, because <laughs> neither of us was licensed. So, <laughs> And you have to work for a licensed architect before you can do that. So, but we had clients, and and so we we thought it would be fun. And it wasn't really architecture; it was really more kind of simple design and additions. But we both started teaching to support ourselves in the interior design program at the University of Texas at Austin. Okay. And um, then two years later, uh, a teaching job at Arizona State came along. Okay. That's when the real teaching career began. And can you can you talk more about what it was about teaching that grabbed you? I mean, you've been kind of hinting at it throughout. You've been talking about the kind of theatrical performance side. I think especially thinking about Scully, there's this uh, historical side that's, you know, kind of talking about the architecture seemed something that, that you were interested in. Um, how did that feel like the better fit for you than being the architect in the traditional sense. Sure. And I, I talk about the theatricality away in a, in a, in a self-deprecating way. <laughs> yeah. um, Vince was theatrical, but what he really was, was scholarly. Uh, right, right, right. I know what you mean. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, that, it, what, that, that appealed to me. That it appealed to me that you could convey scholarly information, which is often so dry um, in a fashion that was so engaging and so appealing that people really lost, they lost a sense of where they were and just became one with the subject. You couldn't help it. And it was mm -hmm. like a great minister, you know, on, on, on a, depending on your faith on a Saturday or a Sunday or a Friday. <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. And, um, it, it was, you know, again and again, he would take you away. And, and when the, when the class was over, it was really disappointing because you were back into regular life again. And right. it was, and it was right. abrupt. It was suddenly the light. Right. Came on. That was it. Um, and so uh, the ability to, to, to get people excited about the subject of architecture, which excited me, um, really, truly underlay my, my desire to be a teacher, which in academia is not necessary, in, in, in higher learning is not, Mm -hmm. really the fundamental mission of the institution, which is primarily research. And right. I didn't realize that. And that, that too was problematic for me and caused <laughs> difficulties yeah. later because I'm not a researcher. I don't have a PhD and, and um, I, I don't want to become the writer of long form, deeply researched pieces. It's, that's, that is not of, of interest. And so once again, I found myself in a weird position, wanting to be in the field and yet not really cut out. <laughs> right, 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 right. So I got the opportunity I, to do it a different way. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious about that. And and I don't know exactly, I, uh, as you were talking about that, I was trying to figure out the word that I'm looking for. And I don't, the word I keep coming back to is process. And I don't mean that maybe like your approach or your point of view, how that is different or how that is where it's different and where it's the same, whether you are teaching versus 
writing or editing. So you were the editor of Architecture Magazine, where that is, you know, literally text to page. Was that process, you know, kind of forming those essays, writing that, or then when you were editing, possibly editing other people, how is that different than standing in front of a room talking about these things? Was it, you know, were subject matters different? Was kind of your your process of structuring those different? How can you talk about that kind of back and forth a little bit? Yeah, I love that as a question. Um, I haven't really thought about it particularly in those terms, um, but they do share a lot in common. My writing started um, with a newspaper in Phoenix. Hmm. And so it was immediately in a forum that's highly public um, right, where you right your approach is to a broad audience rather than to an audience of, of specialists, which academia can do both, but has a tendency to, to lean toward the specialists. And you hope it does because that's a demonstration of true scholarship. Um, mm-hmm. and, and you want that to happen over and over again. And, and in my many administrative posts, I, I just have such incredible respect and fascination for these scholars, you know, for the special yeah. who yeah. can really find all of that out. It, 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 and I try and support it as heavily as I can because it, 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 it's a critical function in any, in any discipline. And we're not just a profession, we're a discipline, but we're a profession too. And that's one of the beauties of architecture. And it's part of what I think, had I known how to talk about it better than I might have been able to articulate, which is, part of the beauty of of this field is that it is both it is both a profession out there making and doing and it is a discipline something with clear rules and and terms of engagement and methods of 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 investigation uh and and tempering and trying um and testing and that that leaves so much room for investigation for anybody for whom that is a pleasure um, and so many different ways of doing it. You you can be scholarly and you can be out there hammering and sawing and be equally engaged by the profession. And that to me was, it took me a while to recognize that and understand it. But um, it is that. And the same is true in, in the writing and the teaching. Both of them, both of them are attempts to, I think, are attempts to, to identify uh, themes, identify arguments, identify conversations, identify ideas, and help expound upon them, help extend them to audiences that might not have gotten them before or encountered them, whether it's in the written word or the spoken word. Um, and the newspaper versus the magazines, that's too similar. Those are the same. Although in my case, it was a newspaper that was a general circulation newspaper, the Arizona Republic, which is the, the big paper in Arizona. It's the, the daily in Phoenix um, versus Architecture Magazine, which is highly directed toward professional practicing architects. So right. different, different audiences, but nevertheless overlap between the two. And we worked very, very hard at Architecture where we had a, just an amazing, amazing group of people working at the magazine at that time um, that tried to reshape that magazine to appeal more to a general audience and yet mm. not lose 
the architects at the same time to help bring those two together, if you will. Yeah. How did you how did you go about doing that? Or what? This is something that I'm always fascinated by when I talk to people who are writing for, you know, write, you know, architecture critics who are writing for major newspapers is how do you write about architecture in a way that somebody who maybe thinks they know nothing about architecture can get something out of it and learn it, but then also somebody who is right in the middle of the profession can also read it and not feel like this person has no idea what they're talking about or, oh, I actually learned something from this also. How do you kind of strike that balance or how do you hit both of those those audiences? Well, you know, in, in, in an architectural magazine, you have an opportunity to do it in a number of ways that are convenient. Um, so some subject matters let's say architectural, uh, let's say structural technologies or material technologies, you can break those out into separate conversations, separate kinds of stories, separate sections of the magazine, uh, so that uh, uh, someone with expertise can look at that and, and know that they'll be uh, engaging material in conversations that are familiar with them and are in a language that they'll understand and, and uh, a language that expects a certain amount of expertise before you start. And then there are stories and subject mm. matters that you can move into more general conversations. Um, and we, we did that wherever we could by trying to tie architecture to popular culture, trying to, mm. to remind architects that they, and remind them and remind them and remind them that they are part of a much larger um, cultural enterprise uh, and that they have to see that and respond to it at, at multiple levels at all times. And that that's just preaching to the converted, good, you know, the strong architects yeah. love that. That's why they're in the field. It keeps them going yeah. every day. They get excited about it. And we tried to move that magazine away from a, a rather hackneyed approach to architectural journalism and toward one that was informed um, uh, by that kind of recognition of architecture as a popular cultural medium. The newspaper is much easier. I was the critic. My job was to talk to general audiences um, about subject matters that were of interest to them. And um, there are so many of those, especially in a place like Phoenix, which is where I live right. at the time, which is just has who's the physical environment of which has just been so badly abused by so many players um, that it's <laughs> it's picking low fruit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Can you know? I, you were the editor of Architecture in like the late '90s, early 2000s, and I got interested in graphic design in the early 2000s when I was a, a teenager. And I remember being 14, 15 years old and finding issues of Immigre magazine. Oh yeah. And and all of this like really interesting design discourse and I felt like I had just missed like the biggest moment in graphic design and I feel like the the 90s early 2000s in design generally was such a great era of design writing and 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 theory and the the way we talk about these things and I try really hard to not romanticize that as somebody who obviously was not a part of it uh and kind of looking back of it was better then but I'm wondering your thoughts on how design writing design criticism 
uh, design discourse, even if you want to use that word. From your point of view, how has it changed or evolved since your time editing architecture to uh, the way we talk about design today or the way we talk about architecture today or the types of architecture and design writing that are happening today? What are the how has that kind of evolved or, or do you have thoughts on that evolution even? Sure. And I, and I think I'm sorry. Yes, I do. Um, sorry. Yeah, I know. I asked you like five questions in there. So <laughs> that's quite all right. I think in, in many ways, the conversation is unchanged and of course changing. And that sounds, you know, mm-hmm. that's, that's just classic, you know, the, uh, expert <laughs> speak so that you can always be the expert. Well, I said it was changing and unchanging. <laughs> right. right. It, it, that, it isn't, that isn't meant to be, um, in any way, uh, Putting the question off, the you were you're absolutely right that the, that period at the end of the '90s and the early 2000s was a moment of extraordinary uh, uh, excitement in the design fields, um, and that where they first started to come together in a very clear way that design boundaries were disappearing and. And so that you could have questions, you could have conversations about theory and and practice um, with designers across disciplines in a way that you hadn't had in a long time. I mean, it had happened before, obviously, the Bauhaus, which is where IIT comes from. Um, right. Uh, but it had clearly engaged that kind of conversation, but it had gone away and uh, replaced by a much more kind of practical approach. And in, in the late 90s, as a result, I think, of the, at least in part, of the, uh, the terrible recessions of the 80s in architecture and design, economic recessions that put so many architects and designers out of work who instead started to write and, and have conversations and, and birthed um, the, the postmodern moment, which forget the historicist overtones in architecture, was really much more about... Um, uh, conversations about um, the nature of what uh, what comprises architectural thought, mm. and uh, they weren't <laughs> that conversation didn't always end up uh, in the best place. But that that was really its underlying message or underlying subject was that, that that architectural thought is much larger, broader, and 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 deeper than than folks might initially have imagined. Um, but uh, and I do want to say one thing that part of the reason that Architecture Magazine could do this was because of two exceptionally brilliant people. Um, the mm. first one was Abbott Miller. Oh, who, yeah. Yeah, who who redesigned our magazine. Right. I forgot about that. Yeah. And it just tossed all of the regular conventions of, of magazine design on their ear, um, mm-hmm. particularly magazine design for architectural publications, which had been so deadly dull up to that they were all exactly yeah. the same one centered building photograph on the cover with <laughs> very traditional font yeah. um, announcing you know something and that was it you know and then five stories about five buildings on the inside and that was the end of it and abbott really threw all that over and then even more influential um, for our magazine was um, our creative director a woman named lisa naftalin who uh cut a remarkable swath across New York um, design uh, in New York uh, in in that same time period, not just mm-hmm. architectural design and magazine design, but all kinds of design, um, who came in and really helped us understand at the magazine that every decision we made had to be purpose-driven. 
and uh, right. you didn't make any decision about who you were hiring to write, what the page looked like, what the subject matter of the story was without design in mind, both visual design and intellectual design of the issue. Um, and uh, she remade Abbott's work. She kept all of its best parts, stripped out the parts that, that needed reconsideration and, and helped us intellectually turn that magazine into something far greater than it ever could have been. I mean, it just all credit where credit is due. Um, I mean, I, I kind of want to connect some of that to this kind of larger theme of this conversation of, of kind of you feeling, I mean, you're kind of making this magazine that is using graphic design in a non-traditional way to kind of speak to different audiences. And you are talking about how you never quite feel in place in the, <laughs> you know, in the kind of different roles that you are in. And I, I hope I can kind of phrase this right. I, I want to talk about, you know, basically the last 10 years of your career and then, you know, hopefully then connect that to what you're doing now. But, um, you know, you were the dean at Tulane. You were the director at Cranbrook, which I'd like to talk a little bit more about. Now you were just appointed earlier this year dean of, of uh, IIT and where you're in these kind of leadership roles. You're not just a, 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 a teacher anymore. You're kind of directing these, these programs. And I'm thinking about your background and this kind of experience of kind of straddling worlds or feeling kind of out of place in those worlds and how that influences you now running these programs or running these schools. And I'm thinking about two people that I've talked to before. Um, I just recently talked to Vishan Chakrabarty, who I saw that you know and oh. won a grand prize yeah, with. We're good, we're uh, good buddies. Uh, and someday, he and I talked. Someday I'm going to grow up to be as smart and oh. as clever, as elegant and urbane and good looking <laughs> as John Chakrabarty. I know exactly what you mean. have to be in another life because he's so far ahead I'll never come. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he, he, uh, that conversation was so interesting to me when I talked to him, but, but we talked about his new role as dean and this idea of the practitioner dean and the kind of reciprocal nature of that. But I also talked to um, Christopher Hawthorne, the former yeah. Los Angeles Times design critic who's now the chief design officer of the city of Los Angeles. And former contributor to Architecture Magazine. Right, right. Thank you very much. Uh, it all comes together. It all comes together. Uh, it all and comes I together. I talked to him about the fact that um, the mayor of Los Angeles picked a design critic instead of an architecture, instead of an architect, um, picked a, a writer or a critic to, to lead that post and what it means to be a critic now being the chief design officer. And I'm curious how you think about that as somebody who has been a teacher, who has worked as an architect, who is a critic and a writer and an editor. How does, how does that background affect the way you take on these roles of deans of these programs? Well, I think that's a, a, another really great question in a, in a whole string of them. Um, so this is, this is a lot of fun. Um, oh, good. Chris Hawthorne is super bright. And um, what's interesting about it is not only is he not an architect, he didn't go to architecture school. Mm -hmm. 
yeah. I at least went to architecture school and practiced and, you know, had that kind of firsthand experience to decide whether or not this was right or wrong for me. Oh, right, right. Chris came at it um, for, as a traditional journalist, and we met him when he was in the design journalism pro, uh, specialty program at Columbia. Uh, oh, right. Uh, for, for already practicing journalists. I think he'd been, he was out in Seattle, I believe, writing for either the reader or one of the, one of the local Seattle papers. And he's a, he's a, just a terrific writer and um, very mm-hmm. thinker. And what was great about having him write for us is we tried, we, we got rid of at architecture, most of our traditional architectural writers in favor of journalists and, and novelists and, um, and artists um, mm. in, in order to try and broaden the, the tone of the magazine. And Chris was one of those and he, he did a great job. And what was clear then when he was very young and has remained clear as he has reached middle age is, <laughs> I'm sorry, Chris, <laughs> um, anybody who has, you know, semi-grown kids or has is like right. that's approaching middle age. Um, he's, uh, he has a really broad vision. And this is getting mm-hmm. to answer your question. I think part of what has enabled me to move from um, academia to the private sector, one of the things that I would add to the, the kind of 10 years was of my last 10 years was that I've run a private practice for five right. years that helps people find architects for projects and consults on, on what it means to make an architectural project and on big, interesting projects. But that, that bouncing in and out um, is what, and, and as, as, and Chris's vision, um, and he's, he's not alone. There, there are plenty of other people like this. Um, I think gives them the ability to, to look out across, across a complicated field and start to see common denominators where others might not have seen them Mm. where others vision is, is either constrained or, or is trained toward the particular, um, those that are trained toward the general, um, can see things in ways that others might not see. That doesn't make it superior. It just makes it different. And I think is a subtle argument for the strength of liberal arts education. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, uh, and, and Chris is a product of, of that as well. And so I, 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 you asked, you started this question from the position of being a man out of time and space. And um, I, I've never felt like that hurt me. I right. felt like it helped. Right. And I still do feel like it helps. Yeah, I mean when I asked when I asked that question, I was thinking about the kind of the the Vashan practitioner dean versus the real uh, practitioner dean. Well, I felt I was like, you're kind of neither you're not really the Christopher Hawthorne critic now chief design officer, and you're not quite Vashan practitioner dean, but you're also kind of both of them. Yeah. And so I was kind of curious how you think about that. So that's that I, I think that kind of the way you talked about kind of toggling in and out of these different modes uh, is exactly right. Yeah, it's an oscillation, really. I mean, I love thinking yeah. of myself as a composite of Chris Hawthorne and Vishan Chakrabarty. That would be a pretty <laughs> thing to be. I'd be a lot smarter than I am right now and, yeah. and probably taller, too. But um, the... Uh, it, uh, but you're right that that oscillation is has been. I, I don't think I was aware of it when I was young, mm-hmm. but I got I became aware of it relatively quickly because before I was 30, 
well before I was 40, I had, yeah, in my mid-30s, I had already, and I went to school late, you know, so this doesn't start mm -hmm. till I'm almost, let's see, I'm almost 30 years old before any of this begins. So in a relatively short period, I'm I'm in and out of teaching and, and, and mm. journalism and practice all at once. And, um, and it's exhilarating. It's exhilarating, but it's a little lacking in direction. And <laughs> right. As direction starts to take hold, then it becomes a very different kind of conversation. Um, and one in which I can actually look back and say, well, what did we do over here? And how could that inform what I'm doing over there? And mm. so every day here at IIT, which after after all is a, a very different kind of place. This is a, a technical university, yeah. right? And and really wants to be understood as that. I'm not a technician, <laughs> and I'm mm -hmm. not an engineer. Mm -hmm. I'm not an, I'm not a licensed architect. So how do you work in a in a in an institutional setting that? has this storied history of technical intervention, uh, intervention, invention, excuse me. Right, right, right. Invention and, 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 in, arch and in architecture of, um, of both um, design invention and um, methodological invention. After all, Mies had a very particular way of teaching mm -hmm. the subject of architecture and having run the Bauhaus had had the experience, a very different kind of experience there. Um, right. And, and it's also interesting to remember here that the Institute for Design is here as well, which was Laszlo Maholinaj, one of right. Mises' yeah. uh, colleagues, coming to Chicago completely separately and ending up not very happily for either one of them personally in exactly the same place. Um, <laughs> yeah. And both coming up with a very different interpretive pedagogy. So that that kind of question about pedagogy in an unusual place or, or sorry in a place that you might not expect it to be is one that i find really invigorating and i do look across all of these other things and say well how does that have an effect on a university that's trying to move forward in a in a highly uh, highly technologically driven age right and remain mm -hmm. relevant mm -hmm. and not only relevant but to help define relevancy how how does it you know how do you how do you reach across these other disciplines and bring that to play in uh, and I do I think about it all the time. What you're saying is again I don't mean to turn this podcast into kind of career advice like me asking you career advice, <laughs> um, but I I again see so much of myself in in the way you are talking about your career in that and feel like I've had this career where I've gotten to where I've worked as a designer I've worked as a teacher I've worked as a writer I've done all these things. Uh, and kind of thinking about that direction. And I've started thinking about kind of settling into academia. And I think, you know, my 10 year plan would be to direct a, a design program, Dean, kind of what, what you have done. And I'm interested in the role of being a Dean or even at Cranbrook, the role of being a director where you have the pedagogy, you have the kind of critical side, but you also have this, um, administrative side how does that then filter in is that um how does your background kind of help with the the almost the I, I don't mean to like make it sound so cheap but like the business side of education also is that something that you're thinking about too oh yes absolutely <laughs> and i would i would just 
caution you. Be careful what you wish for. I know. Because <laughs> academic administration is not what I thought it was. Okay. But happily, I found out that I like a lot of it. Mm. Um, and because I've been in the private sector running, you know, being at that magazine for seven years, that's a private sector job, right? And mm. every single mm-hmm. day we were, and as editor in chief for five of those, seven, five and a half of those seven years, I was running a business, a multi-million dollar business mm. that had an annual target for profit that we meet, we met or mm. every year. Um, I had 14 people that whose lives I had to, to watch over um, <laughs> yeah. for whom I was responsible from, you know, getting them paid every week. Um, I had a boss above me that had very strong expectations for this little, little architectural magazine. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, and so that was my, that was a very quick immersion uh, into the private sector. And then when I left, to uh, Cranbrook about, uh, about uh, in 2014, um, my partner and I had had opened this private practice in around 2002. Um, and we'd always kind of swapped back and forth um, who was going to be running it, depending mm. on who, was, uh, who had the time in their, their career path. Um, but by 2014, it was, I was running it on my own. And mm. we had... We hadn't have big clients. Um, they're very. We got. We were very fortunate. We've we've worked with clients like the Highline and the Whitney Museum. And oh, and, yeah. And uh, now the LA County Museum of Natural History um, is a long running client. Um, as, as is uh, as some I can't mention. Sorry, but um, <laughs> a, a number of, of substantial clients that uh, that. Uh, we've worked with, those are all private sector concerns and they all are Mm. a matter of balancing uh, the financial needs of of a client with um, the ability to create great architecture. Right. It's a tricky balance. And so when you find yourself back in the university setting, as I have now, um, you are balancing the same sorts of concerns, the desire on the part of an outstanding faculty to be able to make a contribution, um, the, the overriding and most important and fundamental, the reason we're here, interest, which is in enabling our students to find a career path that makes sense for them and then to excel once they mm-hmm. found that or at least along this part of the path to finding mm-hmm. it. I mean, that is really why we're here. At the end of the day, we can talk about theory and practice, but when you're, right. when you're, in, when you're in academia, you're here to build the best possible learning environment for a group of students. And they also are what makes it the most exciting thing that you do every day. Truly the most important thing every day is walking in this building, which I have to say, is Crown Hall. So <laughs> it's, it's, I walk in and just go, oh my God, you actually work in this building? I try yeah, to get goosebumps yeah. every day. Um, <laughs> but the thing, uh, what what continues those goosebumps is to run into this, this young man or this young woman who's working on this project and they're so excited and they're so frustrated and they're they're so energetic and they're so defeated and they're so happy mm-hmm. and they're so sad and, and they're just all of that bundled up and you, you cannot help but get choked up if you yeah. 
you really need to leave. Right. If it doesn't affect you in that way every single day, and it does, me anyway, um, you should be reconsidering it. And so if it does affect you that way, then the rest of the time is figuring out, okay, what's the good stuff that enables them to make that happen, right? Right. And that's where the administrative part becomes not a drag. It's not a drag for me to work on budgets. And I like actually, this is going to sound awful. (laughs) I love working on budgets. It's, I'm not wow. supposed to, okay. I'm supposed to be writing advanced architectural theory, but in fact, I really love finding an extra $50,000 to buy that laser cutter that we need. <laughs> so it's, that part is really fun for me, but that part, yeah. that's me personally. For you and for others, what's important is to be able to understand that that is what enable is that. Right, right. Yeah. Uh, can you talk more? I, I think, you know, this talking about, you know, getting goosebumps and thinking about the contribution that you can make stepping into this, this new role that, that you've now had since, since July, what, how are you thinking about it? What do you want to bring as Dean? How, how, what do you, you know, what do your unique skills bring to it? Or even how do you, how are you kind of thinking about, uh, you know, the beginning of this, this, this new phase in your career this new ch- this next chapter um you know the one of the things that has been a byproduct of being all around and over and through architectural practices as a as a practitioner for a number of years as a as a professor for a number of years and as a client uh and then as a critic and writer i i've mm-hmm. i've have been afforded the great opportunity to see and experience architecture from a set of perspectives that not everyone is allowed. Yeah. Um, and I think it helps me uh, see the profession uh, in a way, in, in a way that's very different than many others and to see, to understand so much of its potential and to be at the same time, so frustrated over and over again by its failure to live up to that potential, which is, I guess, what makes architecture a mm-hmm. reflection of human beings, um, both the ability to, to achieve and the failure to achieve. Um, I, what, what fascinates me about this and why I think there's such great opportunity here at IIT um, is that this is a school that's always been about architectural practice. Mm. And over the last 20 or 30 years, I have detected a distinct, and I'm not alone in this, drift between the academy and the profession. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I would like to help re-channel that, um, if possible, to move the two back together much more yeah, closely. Yeah, yeah. It is a very bad and, and dangerous situation. Both the legal profession and the medical profession depend upon their university schools as the backbone of their research uh, and the center of their um, mm. practical training, and architecture doesn't have that relationship. And right. I would really like to help begin that conversation much more earn- in, in earnest than it has been in the last twenty years. Yeah, oh, I love. I'm so mad you brought that. I could talk to you about that for another hour. Uh, <laughs> that I mean, that's that's really where this podcast started. Is I felt like I had to choose between academia or practice, and I, I didn't understand why these were so separated. And I wanted to figure out if there was some way to bring it together. And so I was talking to people who I felt were doing that. Um, and so I, yeah, I, I love that. My, I think, it's, I think it's 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 such an exciting subject. I'm glad you like it because it means for the next. 
30 years in your career, you're never going to get bored. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully that's the plan. Um, my last question, this is a, a quick question that I used to end all of, all of these conversations. I'm, I'm just curious what you're reading right now. Is there anything interesting that, uh, that you've been reading or thinking about? You mean when I'm, when I'm not, um, reading terrified, terrified <laughs> every day to pick up the New York. Times. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're all reading that. We're all feeling that. Feeling that. Is there any is anything else? <laughs> you know, um, yeah, there is. Um, I've I've started several different novels. Um, I, mm. I used to concentrate on uh, contemporary literature by women um, mm -hmm. for about twenty years. I just dove into that deeply, um, and uh, it, that that's in a huge well. So I'm going to try and return to that as. Oh, I love that. In it, uh, but I'm also uh, uh, starting uh, a number of other books, and I'm going to see which one, uh, which ones grab my interest the most. Um, that are both fiction and nonfiction. I'm a pretty voracious reader. The last couple of years, I've concentrated on short form media because it's mm. what I write, um, mm -hmm. and then medium form. Um, so short form newspaper medium form, something like the New Yorker right. or, or the Atlantic. Um, and um, those have, those have been where I've really concentrated. And now I'm edging back into, to uh, longer form media, um, much more nonfiction than I did before. I used to be entirely in, in fiction. Reed, this was such a great conversation. I enjoyed this so much and found this so interesting. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. It's absolutely my pleasure. Thank you for thinking to even invite me. This episode was recorded on October 4th, 2019. Our theme music is by Andy Borgasani. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Surface Podcast. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts and at scratchingthesurface.fm. Thanks for listening.